0: Today's reading comes from 1 John, chapter 1, the first four verses. (coughs) What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So today I am uh, going to be starting a new short series on the book of 1 John, or the letter to, uh, of 1 John. Now 1, 2 and 3 John are letters written by the Apostle John, uh, who was one of Jesus' close inner circle of friends. Now, when Jesus went back to heaven, when he ascended to heaven, the apostle, or he gave the apostles the job to do, to, to spread the word, right? To go about uh, sharing the gospel, to make, making disciples of all nations and baptizing them and teaching them and so on. And that's actually what they did. Uh, as the apostles did that, they went around doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They traveled and wherever they went, they preached the good news of Jesus Christ. And as they shared the gospel, they discipled people and they baptized them. Them. And all over the ancient world, uh, churches popped up in the areas they went to visit and more and more people became believers. Now that's obviously a very short and um, a- abrupt summary of what happened in the first you know, 30 years after Jesus' death, but that's actually what happened. Now, what happened was that after the churches were planted, uh, they would be left in the hands of the elders of the local church. And slowly over time, new teachers were appearing, uh, appearing in the various churches and they started teaching a different type of gospel. Now, these letters that John wrote are to correct some of this false teaching. And so as we explore 1 John together, this theme is going to crop up from time to time uh, where John writes to correct a certain untrue thing or unchristian teaching and we're going to see even some of those hints today in our text and so maybe now if you can leave those four verses up on the screen that would be great. So I'll point these out as we go. Now, before we, uh, we start, I need to make a confession to you, friends. As you open today's worship booklet, you will see that the sermon is entitled, you know, Living a Life of Testimony to Jesus or something like that. It's all about how we can live differently because we have fellowship with Christ. And Now, here's the thing. Uh, The way things work here at church is that on Thursdays I need to give all the info to Michelle uh, to put together into our booklets and so on. And so the sermon theme is on those days so that the things can be printed, the musos can have their music ready and so on. And normally my initial reading of the text is pretty sound. Uh, and the theme I come up with is generally pretty close to what I actually end up saying on the Sunday morning. But as I kept reading and studying this passage, um, particularly taking into, contact, uh, taking into account the context, uh, I, I began to realise that the theme for the sermon is at best but an application of the text and not the main point of the text itself. So scrap the title uh, and let's dig in uh, because what I'm going to say is not at all going to match uh, what we call this sermon. But the reason I got this um, sort of wrong on my first read is because this letter starts in a very convoluted and confusing way. It is a, this is a grammatically complex opening to a letter, right? And the opening sentences are, um, you know, they're kind of convoluted and they're, they're grammatically difficult and so on. But the message they teach, once you understand that, is actually remarkably simple. And so to do that justice, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to spend some time just explaining what John is saying in these, you know, in these four verses, working through the text, making sure we understand it. And then I want to show you uh, the, the two applications that come out of that text. So let's spend a couple of minutes thinking about this text itself. Now, the text is convoluted, but its message is simple. Now, what does John say? What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, parentheses, that life was revealed and we've seen it and we testify and declare it to you, uh, the eternal life that was with the Father and revealed to us. What we've seen and we've heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have this fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and his son jesus christ now this is a messy sentence and in fact it's just one really really long sentence and it breaks all of the learning uh you know the writing conventions that we learn at school isn't it this is not clear And every biblical commentator and scholar that writes about these opening verses talks about its convoluted nature. John Calvin, for example, says that uh, this is difficult to read and it's difficult because it starts so abruptly. There's no beginning, there's no entry, there's no uh, sort of summary of what he's going to say. Martin Luther similarly writes that this language is altogether childlike in that it stammers rather than it speaks. Uh, One of the modern commentators, Sean O'Donnell, puts it this way, and he quotes several other commentators, and he goes, he says, while the opening verses of 1 John are not tongue twisters, they do present us with an abrupt, exceedingly complex, syntactically convoluted, frequently ambiguous, complicatedly interweaving, stammering, infuriatingly obscure, insider language, um, as a compilation of commentators puts it. Or more plainly, it is a, dramatic, a grammatical tangle. We wonder, what is the which, and who is the we, and what does the we say that about which is to you? And so all of a sudden, we wonder whether we've jumped into a Dr. Seuss book. So let me attempt to give some clarity. Let's work through this. First question, what is the what? What, we have, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen, and so on. What is the what in verse 1? When you look at the grammar, it's actually pretty clear that the what is Jesus himself. Okay, So in the original, uh, the what is a singular, neutral, uh, a neuter singular pronoun. Now the only thing that makes sense to match with that pronoun is Jesus himself at the end of verse 3. So to translate then, we can read this passage this way. Jesus, who was from the beginning, uh, who we have heard, who we have seen, we've seen Jesus, we've watched him, we observed what he did, we've touched him with our own hands. And it is him that we are testifying to today. We were there with Jesus, we saw his miracles, we touched his hands, we, we saw his broken feet and hands on the cross, we spoke to him. You, you can see that that's what John is referring to. The what is Jesus. So then who is the we? At this time when John was writing this, uh, pretty much most of the other apostles had been persecuted and martyred for their faith. But the we that he writes with here is the we of the apostles. He is writing um, as sort of on behalf of the group of the apostles We, the apostles, who were there during Jesus' earthly ministry. And this is where we run into the first hint of that, um, you know, that conflict we mentioned before. So some false teachers are coming into the church. They started teaching a different gospel. They start teaching wrong things to the church. And the point John is making here is like, no, 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 don't listen to them. They are false teachers. They weren't there. We were there. Don't listen to them because they weren't there. We are his disciples. We were there. We saw him. We heard him talk. We saw with his own eyes how he healed the sick, how he turned water into wine, how he raised people from the dead. We were there. He directly taught us about the kingdom of God, about how the meek shall inherit the earth, about how we're supposed to respond to our enemies. We were there after Jesus came back from the dead. We were in the upper room when Jesus seemingly appeared out of nowhere. Remember Thomas? He's one of the we in this group. You know, He himself was there. He touched Jesus. He felt the holes in his hands and could put his fingers in the side where the, where the spear stabbed him. We were there. Listen to us is the point John is making. Don't listen to these false teachers because their teaching is not authentic as the apostles' teaching is. And so what John is doing here is pretty much what Paul does at the end of um, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, the end of his letter. He says, "Uh, Then he, Jesus, appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, uh, as to one born at the wrong time, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called apostle, uh, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me is not in vain. Paul, there is making the same claim. You need to listen to this letter. Why? Because Jesus appeared to him as well as an apostle. So, both of these writers are doing the same thing. They're saying, Look, listen to us. We were there. We know. We are the apostles who Jesus specially set aside to do this teaching work to establish the churches to provide the teaching. So trust our word. Trust the word of the apostles. So that's who the we is. So the what is Jesus and the we are the apostles. And then finally, what is the, what is the thing that we want to say about the what? What is the message they're trying to, um, to convey? Well, we get the answer in verse 3. What we've seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship with us... And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. So the apostles here want to proclaim Jesus to the readers of the letters. Why? So that those who read this word, who who take on this teaching, can have fellowship and join with the apostles, as the apostles have fellowship with God and with Jesus. Now, this is odd. This really feels like the wrong way around, doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't we normally say that we have fellowship with one another as fellow Christians because we have fellowship with Jesus, right? That's how the church works. Our fellowship with one another, doesn't that depend on our fellowship with God? Actually, that's, you know, why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is communion with God and therefore with one another. And I've probably said this a number of times before, you know, when you when you get into a relationship with jesus when you become a believer all other relationships are secondary your whole identity shifts because you are a christian your fundamental defining feature is that you believe in jesus that relationship is superior to all the others that exist it is more important that you're a believer than it is that you are a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or any other relationship Your relationship as the child of God is more important than your child's relationship with you. And because this is true for every Christian, this binds us together with fellowship uh, with every other believer right throughout the world. You know, to paraphrase Tim Keller, we have more in common with an African Christian who lives in a hut with no electricity, who eats different things, who, who spends their time doing different things, who lives in a culture and community far different to ours than we do with our next-door neighbour who works at the same building, uh, you know, drives the same car, eats the same food and enjoys the same pastimes, but who does not believe in Jesus. Our fellowship with God through Jesus, his son, is surely our most defining feature. So our fellowship with God the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ surely must be more important than our fellowship with the apostles, right? Doesn't that make sense? How then can John say that he is sharing Jesus, proclaiming Jesus to the readers, to us, so that we can have fellowship with the apostles first and then God secondly? It is because of what is happening in the church. These false teachers are coming in. They're teaching a different gospel than that of the apostles. They're teaching a different way of salvation, which is no gospel at all. And so we can paraphrase what John is saying here to say, if you want to have fellowship with God the Father through Christ the Son, then actually you need to hold on to that which the apostles taught, the true gospel message. You need to stay true to the teaching of the apostles, basically stay true to scripture and not be swayed by these different teachers. So this whole convoluted structure of these first four verses is basically saying there is a true Christian teaching and there is a false Christian teaching. So if you want to be saved, if you want to have fellowship with God, if you want to have a right relationship with God through the Son, then you need to stick to orthodoxy. You need to stick to what the apostles are teaching. Because if you swap and you go for the false teaching, you will not only not be joined in fellowship to the apostles, but as a consequence, you will not have fellowship with God. And that's a problem. And then if these baby Christians would stick to the apostles teaching to have fellowship with them then verse 4 would be true we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete so they the apostles will have great joy if the churches stick to the true teachings about jesus it's kind of like um, how as a christian parent you have joy in yourself when you believe in jesus that's true but how much more is your joy complete when your children also believe in jesus so our joy becomes complete because our children share in our joy that's what the apostles are saying there our joy will be complete as these baby churches actually hold to the true doctrine the true scriptural doctrine basically believing the bible and so that's it that's the passage there are these two kinds of seemingly good spiritual teaching one is christian and the other one is not if you want a right relationship with God the Father through the Son Jesus, then you better stick to the true Christian doctrine as proclaimed by the apostles um, because that's what they're teaching. Or you can believe what these false teachers are saying, but then you won't have fellowship with God because you won't have fellowship with the apostles. But when you believe this, the apostles' joy is made complete. So that's actually pretty simple. That's a pretty simple message made out of this untangled word spaghetti, right? Right? But the question then becomes is so what what difference does that make to us well i think this is pretty important to us living in 2023 because this passage reveals to us two different ways of responding to scripture that are as relevant today as they were in the day that john was writing this because we do have the option don't we friends to adopt a worldly view of Jesus, to, t- to take on a worldly kind of Christianity which is no Christianity at all. Because the same problem that faced the church then is the same problem that faces the church today. A watered-down gospel message, subtle perhaps at first, but ultimately destroying the very nature of the faith that we share. And the global church is under incredible attack. And the attack that the church is under is pretty much identical to the attack the church was under here in John's day when he wrote the, when he wrote the letter. We, we get a picture of what, um, of what this involved in verse 8, and we're going to get there in the next few uh, sermons. We didn't read that today, but he says in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Is that not how the world works? wants us to think that there is nothing to be ashamed of ever that we never bear any guilt that we don't have sin isn't christianity all about tolerance and acceptance and love so how can you say then sin is a real thing right is that not part of the world in which we live that's the attack the church was under there but that friends is the attack the church is under today everything goes Jesus accepts you as you are and then just wants you to be whoever you want to be. Literally only days ago, the Anglican Church in England approved a new set of liturgies to be used at ceremonies for same-sex couples to ask for God's blessing on them. And here are the actual words they approved. Gracious God, uh, gracious God, from love we are made... And to love we shall return. May our love for one another kindle the flames of joy and hope. May the light and warmth of your grace inspire us to follow the way of Jesus Christ and serve you in your kingdom now and forever. Doesn't that sound so wonderful? Subtle at first, but fundamentally different to the doctrine of salvation. What does this even mean? Doesn't to follow the way of Jesus Christ mean to put to death the old self, the sinful self, to reject the worldly pleasures and to submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ? Is that not what it means to be the followers of the way of Jesus Christ? That's what it meant to the apostles who were called the people of the way. Jesus did not tell the woman at the well who had multiple husbands and who was even then sleeping with a man who wasn't a husband, just go and be yourself. I accept you as you are. From love you are made, and to love you shall return. What does that even mean? No, what did he say, friends? I accept you as you are, but now go and sin no more. You can bend, it's option, it's true. We can bend and twist and rework the very meaning of words to present a different kind of gospel that is no gospel at all. And the pressure to twist biblical Christianity is very great. But the reality is that when we step out of fellowship with the apostles, when we reject the clear and plain teaching of the Bible, we will not only reject our fellowship with the apostles, but we will actually reject our fellowship with God. And utter foolishness lies that way. Fellowship with the world, constructing a socially acceptable gospel message, watering down the claims of Christ on your life, is extremely foolish. The Anglican Church calls these trial prayers. They're going to trial a bit of apostasy for a while. But it never stops with a trial, does it? Once you step out of step with the apostles into heresy, it doesn't stop. And soon that church will perhaps reject even the Apostles' Creed, which we sang earlier today. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so on. And perhaps they will adopt the sparkle creed instead. I believe in a bur binary God whose pronouns are plural and in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic, had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. That is a real thing. And if that makes you feel a little bit sick, it should. Because it is an aberration. And we cannot endorse this in the name of tolerance. A worldly Jesus is no Jesus at all. So don't give up fellowship with the apostles just to fit into the world. So then how are we to respond? Well, we are to respond with in fellowship to the apostles, to stick to the orthodox teaching, if you like, believing what they wrote, believing in their message, trusting in their words. They were, after all, there. They were the ones who saw Jesus' teaching. They witnessed his resurrection. They were transformed in their lives because of his work in them. And they wrote it down so that we can have fellowship with them, even though, uh, sorry, and then through them, through believing the true gospel message, have fellowship with God the Father and with the Son. Friends, this sounds in some ways easier than it is but it actually changes your life from a passive churchgoer to living a testimony for Jesus. See, I told you there's an application there in the title. It is a testimony to live this way because you're going to believe some stuff and do some stuff that the world will agree with, you know, love people and look after the poor and so on. But you're also going to believe some stuff and do some stuff that the world will want to silence you for and cancel you for. Fellowship with the apostles means not being in bed with the world. You actually cannot have it both ways. Because when we hold on to the truths of Scripture as they are written, the world will not accept you as you are. When the Bible says Jesus died on the cross, we believe that, one, he was actually a real person who died on the cross and that his story is not just one made up to, you know, get power for the believers or whatever, and two, that he actually really died, not that he was hidden away secretly for a few days to make a scene, but that he actually died and rose again. When the Bible says Jesus healed people and chased out demons and calmed the storms, we don't say these are just spiritual stories that point us to a deeper reality. But no, Jesus actually did those things, and he could because he was God. He had the full might and power of the divine behind him. And when Jesus says he created man, or sorry, when the Bible says he created man and woman, we don't say yes, but that's just the author of, you know, the Old Testament, who wrote to a certain time and in a certain place, and contextually that was true. But now we actually know that there are more than just men and women, and that doesn't really depend on your biology. It depends on how you define yourself, actually. No. No. We believe that God created man and woman, and all variations of that are actually a result of brokenness. And when your Bible tells you you should give your money to support the growth of the kingdom, it means you do that. Even when the world says, spend your coin on yourself, you can't take it with you. Splurge on yourself, you deserve it. But no, actually God deserves it. God deserves it because actually we are thankful for the fact that everything we have is a gift from him. And we get to invest in things that matter eternally. Yes, we can't take it with us, so why don't we spend it on things that do matter eternally? Mission work, supporting orphanages and sponsor children and those sorts of kingdom work. Fellowship with the apostles is radical. And it testifies to the fact that you really actually believe that Jesus came to earth and you want to love him and follow him and serve him. And it changes the way you live your life. And I guess the question for us is, which of these two options will we choose? Will we settle for the easy one? A compromised Christ. A version of the Bible that is out of step with the apostles. A version of Scripture that rejects actually its core teachings. A version that's not really the Bible, but more like a Christian sounding spiritual document that offends no one. A type of faith that can happily sparkle with the rest of the world. Will you choose that? That is an option. But you will be out of step. With the apostles, or will you choose to listen to their testimony, to accept scripture as it is, and to remain true to the faith? To say with the Christians of all the ages, many of whom died for this faith, will you join them and proclaim that you believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth? And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended to hell. The third day he rose again and ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Is that your truth? The truth. That's fellowship with the apostles, not with the world. Which will you choose? Let me pray. Lord, we are challenged again with your word this morning, even in a convoluted piece of text, but with a message that is so clear and penetrating to the heart. Oh Lord, help us to stand firm in our faith. Help us to stick to the truth of scripture and to reject the worldly uh, kind of Christianity the world wants to force upon us. At the same time, Lord, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in the church that is uh, moving into this um, apostasy. We want to particularly pray for the Christians in uh, in the Anglican Church in England. We want to pray that they will see the error of their ways and if not, that the true Christians there will, will in fact split off to remain true to you and not to submit to false teaching. And we pray that for us too as we uh, seek to serve you in this world, that evermore wants to uh, change what we say and uh, silence us and cancel us and do all kinds of things contrary to your word. Pray that you give us great conviction of the truth. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.